Welcome to A Cinematic Journey, the show where we explore the themes, scenes, and elements of the movies that we love. I'm your host, Peter Billingsley, alongside talented filmmaker, stand-up comedian, Mr. Steve Byrne. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Pete. Happy holidays to you. Yes, happy holidays to you as well. Well, this film is based on a real-life experience from its writer. It's one of the few R-rated holiday movies. And due to excessive improv, the first edit came in at a whopping three hours and 45 minutes. Its ending was completely reimagined during post-production. And was the fifth of eight movies directed by the great John Hughes. Pete, we must be talking about... Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. (laughs) Del. Why did you kiss my ear? Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Those are not pillows. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is the holiday season, and we are in New York City. We meet Neil Page, played by Steve Martin. Now, Neil is a well-put-together, impeccably dressed, seems to speak and smell of success. He has a beautiful watch, and he's stuck in a board meeting, the kind of meeting that you just want to get out of. And in Neil's case, he really wants to get out because he is late now for a flight going to Chicago from New York City. It's rush hour. It's the holidays, and it seems like he and the other 8 million inhabitants of the metropolis known as Manhattan are trying to get to the airport. He's bribing his way. There's a little almost kind of Western showdown between him and a fun cameo by Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it's great. He settles for a bus and he ends up at the airport. And finally gets on board, but because he was late, he's bumped from first class. You see, Neil is a first class kind of guy. He's upset about this. This this trip is going from bad to worse. And now he's relegated to a middle seat, back in coach, wedged between a guy who looks like he's on death's door, and then an overweight man, played by John Candy, named Del Griffith. And Del's taken off his socks, his feet stink, he's rubbing his, his, his dogs from a long day. Right away you tell that Neil and Dell are like the odd couple. Yes. It's like type A and type D. It's like just two people that would never get along. But Neil's optimistic. He's hopeful. All he wants to do is get home for Thanksgiving and see his family. Well, good news. It only gets better. His flight gets diverted to Wichita. He's stuck there in the terminal, a sea of bodies. Everybody's in the same situation. And he's waiting for an update on his flight, which brings us to the central conflict of this movie. Let's take a look. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? I'm sorry to announce that we're canceling flight 909 due to severe weather in Chicago. Neil. Hi. Well, welcome to Wichita. (laughs) Did you book a room yet? I uh, couldn't get in anywhere. (laughs) As soon as we got off the plane, you called home. I called the Braidwood Inn. I missed that one. I got an idea. I know the manager pretty well. I sold him some rings for his curtains. Uh, if you want to pick up the cab fare, I'll make sure you get a room for the night. <laughs> uh... Yeah, 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 sure, great. All right. So great. It's 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 so true. If you look, that's Ben Stein just in such a great little cameo yeah. reading the last man on earth you'd want to hear read that your flight was canceled makes you even more annoyed. <laughs> but if you look on the marquee, it says yeah. destination nowhere. So they've taken <laughs> right. the time to put nowhere on there mm-hmm. because the flight's now canceled. Right. And when Dell asks him and says, you want to share a room and there's that long pause, you know, Neil 
thinks he doesn't want to. This is the last guy he wants to spend any right. time with. But he sees that familiar guy on the floor sleeping next to a trash can. Right. And this guy's in a suit. And he's just like, I don't want to be that guy. We've all been that person sleeping in airports. We've seen so many people. And it's just the worst feeling. So he kind of swallows his pride, probably regrets the decision instantly, right. but agrees to go on. And it's really the central question of this movie, now partnered up with Dell, the last man on the planet that he would ever expect to be stuck with. Sure. Can Neil make it home in time? For Thanksgiving. And the stakes couldn't be higher. It's the holidays, too. That's what, exactly, when, that's when, exactly when right. When do you want to be with your, with your family the and most? And when do you not want to travel the most? I mean, there are people now who will not travel to see family during the holidays. They'll go the week before, the week after, because it's right. such a nightmare. And so well, that's always what you said to me. I, I've invited you to Nashville many times. You said, I, I just... I, just this weekend. Not, this, you know, yeah, there's, uh, the think, I think there's a holiday going on. <laughs> Seems to be a holiday every weekend. I just can't seem to make it, Steve. One of these days, I'll make it there. That's right. Yeah, yeah it's been sure. two two and a half uh -huh. years, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. you're my Del, you're my Del Griffith. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. No matter how many gifts you get this holiday season, you get to define how you give to yourself. For those who have participated in or have given the gift of therapy, you know it helps people become the best versions of themselves. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Christmas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Christmas. Art imitating life. How this film came about was based off a real-life experience that John Hughes had encountered. He was um, flying to Chicago, which from New York is a two-hour flight. Yep. It's pretty easy, right? And so he ends up in Phoenix, which is insane, of all places, that's uh, that's like an extra three three hours. Yes. It's like a five hour flight. So he ends up in Phoenix, and what happens is, while he's stuck in Phoenix for some reason or another, um, he meets a traveling salesman mm -hmm. that knows the ins and outs, and essentially the protocol of what to do when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, and he said he was pretty impressed because, like as you said, all the ins and outs that he knows, but also he's sort of this calm in the storm. Mm -hmm. You know, it turns into chaos. Right. And there's sort of rules like everybody runs to the customer service line. I know you've told me that. You're like, don't do that. Don't do that, yeah. Get online, get on your app, get ahead of it. Yeah. You know, like the mob moves, the the lemmings all follow each other. Right. <laughs> and you have to have, you know, this hidden knowledge to know how to navigate things. I think as a stand-up comic, the best jokes are always the ones that are right in front of you. And every time you see a comic yeah. and you're sitting in the back of the room, you go, ah. Oh, when I think of that, right. and I think that that is what John Hughes did. I, you, you look at all the films he's he's done that that have resonated and still resonate to this day, is that we've all been in these situations that are so relatable. And what he does is he takes almost the perfect storm, the worst of the worst situations, culminating them within ninety minutes, and making it the worst version of your most relatable story. You know, he was also a guy who lived life. He he lived. Uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, he did not live in Hollywood, mm -hmm. even as a screenwriter. He stayed connected. He went grocery shopping and drove his kids around. His and kids participated. were yeah. yeah. He participated in life and continued to be inspired by life. Right. And that really fueled him, I think, well 
And it's one of the reasons his movies feel so familiar, so timeless. But what he would do is he would he would take one of these relatable life experiences, the premise of of whatever he'd want to go down the rabbit hole on, and he'd bang out a script. He'd bang out a script, you know, over the course of a weekend, over the course of a week. He was notorious for just being a machine that could generate script. It's incredible. He said <laughs> that he was fortunately a very fast typist. Yes. He had come from the world of advertising. He had written for magazines as well for periodicals. And he said, you know, both of those have a deadline. Mm -hmm. So he was very used to writing quickly on a deadline. You have to be prolific to turn things out. It's not the luxury of three months to write a script. He wrote this script and, you know, the rumors are anywhere from three to five to six days (laughs) to get a 145-page script out. So it just came naturally, but it's not normal for other writers. And these scripts, because he was so busy, could wind up just laying around his office as he had a multitude of projects going on that he was either writing, directing, producing. And to your point, uh, established director Howard Deutsch was in his office and happened to pick up some pages and a script and read it and said, John, this is great. I would like to make this. Yeah, and this is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. John gives his blessing. And as this script starts making its way into... uh, the ether, the Hollywood ether, and knowing they're building momentum, they're going to go into pre-production or whatever, a name gets attached, Steve Martin. Yeah, Steve apparently reads this through his agent, loves it, uh, was obviously familiar with John's work, and instantly gravitates to the character of Neil. John Hughes hears this, and I think has to say <laughs> to Howie, look, it's Steve Martin, I've always loved him, I've always sure. wanted to work with him, and says, you know, I'd like to direct this. It's an opportunity to work with Steve Martin and how he says, fine. And this is so crazy. So he's like, well, why don't you go direct another movie? So they're prepping the great outdoors, how he goes on to that. And Steve Martin had said to him, hey, look, you know, this is a 145-page script. Great, but what are you (laughs) planning to cut before we get going here? John said, cut. We're not cutting anything. Mm -hmm. You know, and movie scripts, if you want to just estimate, would be about a page a minute. So traditionally comedies, I would say now you try to keep under 110 pages, Mm -hmm. maybe above 100, between 100 and 110. Knowing that probably editorially, right, you'd pull out some stuff is always a little bit extraneous, but this would be starting at a 145-minute movie. (laughs) And also knowing that, you know, John Hughes and probably Candy for sure and Steve Martin, great comedians, there's going to be some improv. Yeah, this thing could balloon up, but that was the process for John. There was a lot of trust for him, obviously. However, he makes movies, the actors felt like, okay, you know, we're in we're in good hands. Right. And it's a great story and a great script. So this dream team is together and off they go to shoot this movie. Right pace, right time. Well, we're excited to have with us today the editor of Planes, Trains and Automobiles and Oscar winning editor, Paul Hurst. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh very honored to be here. Just want to touch a little bit on your body of work, which, for context, and just naming a few, you've worked on so many great movies, but Carrie, Star Wars, for which you won the Oscar, Empire Strikes Back, Footloose, Mission Impossible, Ray, Falling Down, Steel Magnolias. And this is just a small sample size of your resume. Something that stands out is just the diversity in tones of these movies, and some are comedies, some are science fiction, some are action, some are hardcore drama. The sense I get from you is that you're very much wired to come from story, to come from character. And if that's intended to be funny or action-oriented or suspenseful or scary, you know, that's the end result of it, but that you're very much sort of a story editor. My approach is not so much 
I mean, of course, story and character are, are essential, but I think what the editors, what an editor can bring to the picture is pace mm-hmm. and tempo and uh, never feeling that if if I see a well-edited movie, I never feel like, oh, come on, let's get on with it, you know. Right, right. Or, wait, that went by too fast. I didn't get that, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a friend who passed away this year, a, a lovely guy named Don Cambern who edited Easy Rider, and he became a teacher, and he used to tell his students there are two rules, never bore the audience and never confuse the audience, and I think those are great guiding principles. Yeah. But, you know, to that, I would bring a sense of musical pacing so that even the non-musical numbers have a musical feel to them in the sense that the you establish a tempo and you keep to that tempo and you know and if you break it it's for a reason right there was an early film historian Ricciotto Canudo in the ni- early 1900s and he said there are two kinds of arts there are the arts of the rhythms of space and the arts of the rhythms of time and the arts of rhythms of space he put into uh, things that are material, like painting or, or sculpture or architecture. And then in the Rhythms of Time, he included um, poetry and music and dance, which there's nothing material there, and yet you're making art out of intangibles. Mm-hmm. The brilliance of film was that uh, it, it joined the two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that in film editing, which is the only aspect of film which is native to film, cinematography has its roots in painting and and then there's costume design and back to the theater and there's all sorts of theater arts in film. Sure. What it did was it joined these two kinds of arts where the the intangible is made tangible with this piece of film. Right. You have a piece of film, a short piece of film is a short piece of time. A long piece of film is a longer piece of time. So the editor can control time in a way that it never was before. Mm. And that control of taking something and making it into material, a material uh, object with which filmmakers could could control time was uh, the brilliance of the invention. Hitch your wagon. Directors can get very for a little context, very possessory of the editors which they work with. And the editor is such an incredibly important job to the process. For you have this mountainous crew that's out in production, and then the whole future of the picture distills down to a couple of small rooms and just a handful of people. Well, the editor is the one person with whom the director works closest and longest. There's no other, but no one else on the picture works with the director as Correct. intimately and as long as the editor. I used to pride myself on being invited back. That if I had done a picture with uh, a director and that he asked me back for the next picture, I felt was, and that was something in which to take pride. You know, right. that that meant I had done a good job and and uh, served him well. And uh, you know, I think one of the things I'm proudest of is if you look at my credits. You see, I did four pictures with Herb Ross, and I did eleven pictures with Brian De Palma, and I did, you know, two with George Lucas. Although I w- he wasn't directing, but he, you know, he was the right. reason I was hired on sure. Empire. And how did you first get connected with John Hughes? Um, I was in 
L.A. I had moved to L.A. in 1983 from New York. I'm originally from New York. The first picture I got in L.A. was Footloose for Paramount. Yeah. So Paramount knew me. They were happy with me. And uh, John had directed The Breakfast Club, mm-hmm. which was cut by Dee Dee Allen, who was a New York editor. She was the doyenne of New York editors. Sure. And uh, Dee Dee, uh, I guess, was unavailable. And my agent told me, He's looking for a New York editor. He only wants to work with New York editors. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's great. <laughs> I'm a New York editor. Right. Used to be. Right. <laughs> so we met, and that was it. He hired me. And that was on Ferris. On Ferris. Right. While we were mixing the picture, John never showed up. And he left me in charge of f- finishing the sound. Wow. But at a certain point, I said, I called him up and I said, John, you got to come down here and sign off on these reels. Yeah. So he came in and the next day and he handed me a manila envelope. And inside were 60 pages. I said, what's this? He says, my next film. So I pulled it out and it was the first 60 pages of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Mm. And he had written it in one sitting the night before. Right. So it was like, you know, six pages an hour for 10 hours or 10 pages an hour for six hours. I don't know. But it would just spill out of him. What was your first impression of the script when you read it, when John handed you the script? I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was going to be the funniest movie ever made. You know, I said, got to work on this. Yes, I want to do it. I'll do it. I want to do it. Pete, it's the holidays. Yes. What do you think about? You think about food. You and I, were, were, we're dudes. We love food. Oh, yes. We love <laughs> cooking. We love cooking for and with our families. Yes. And we're going to be doing a lot of cooking on our Traeger this holiday season. Yes. In fact, we're going to fire it up, and we're going to do a turkey on the Traeger, and we're going to smoke a pie for dessert. Done. So many great products. They have rubs. They have sauces. At Traeger.com, you can get all of your cooking needs right right there in one stop. And I've been using the Wi-Fi connectivity, which means that I can monitor the temperature, the duration of the cook right on the Traeger app on my phone. Right. I don't even have to be at home. So for something like the size of a turkey, I get it on, I get the probes in it, and I just start to watch this thing as it cooks. I don't have to keep opening the lid, doing the push test second-guessing, hoping Mm -hmm. that it's done. I know exactly to the number what the internal temperature is, and I basically just wait until it's done. They have the pellets. They have different flavored pellets. They have different sauces and rubs and everything. It's all-encompassing. So whether you're just starting out or you're a seasoned veteran, Traeger has the right grill for you. These grills are available in all different types at Mm Traeger.com, and they have a sale going on right now. They don't do a lot of sales. It's $300 off select grills. Go to Traeger.com, check it out. Just shoot me. So as as production starts to mount up on this, uh, you have a 145-page script, and then the published shooting schedule is 85 days. Yeah. Uh, which is, for context for the audience, it's like an action movie-sized schedule. It's insane. You know, comedy would have... 36 days. Yeah, I was going to say 38. Right. You know, maybe 40 if you're lucky. You know, 85 days means they're shooting every day, which means the camera's going to be rolling every day. So the amount of footage that you start getting. But also you have two comedians on set that are going to improv and and you're going to let it roll. I mean, That's right. As this journey started and the footage is coming in, what's your initial reaction? uh, Overwhelmed. I flew to Chicago, went to the hotel where everyone was staying. And they had a ballroom set up as a screening room. And 
we were to watch dailies that day. And the dailies that day were of Steve on a commuter train in Chicago, and the picture starts to roll, and it's a wide shot of Steve, and then that rolls for about, you know, five minutes, and then there's a stop, and then they, another take, and it's Steve sitting on the train, slightly different angle. <laughs> this is your first day. First day. <laughs> oh, my God. Not saying anything, by the way. No dialogue, <laughs> just correct? Sitting just there. sitting on a train. Not saying anything. Yeah. Five reels, six reels, seven reels, eight reels, nine reels, ten reels. It's two hours. And I'm wondering, what the heck are we looking for here? This is in film editing days. So this is... Yeah. Right. So this is, I mean, scrolling. again, You're... this is not everything gets loaded into an Avid. Yeah. And it might be a little easier to organize. This is strips of film that you're you trying got... to sort through. The taxi driver was the scene that put me over the edge. Because in the script, it's a quarter page. Okay. They get in the cab. Doobie is driving the cab right. to the Wichita Motel. Yeah, just after they've landed. Right. right. They get rerouted and just have to get to a hotel. And Steve says... Uh, why did you come this way? Well, your friend said he'd never been here. I thought I'd give him the give scenic, him the scenic route. route. Right. You know, on the freeway, all you see is freeway. Right. And Steve says, but it's night. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, so that was it. That was the scene. Right. Right. You know, 30 seconds or whatever. So they start shooting it, and they have the taxi on a stage. So they, he gets a wide shot from the front. You see the two guys sitting in the back and the driver in front. There's a couple of takes of that. They go through the whole scene. Then there's a close-up of the driver. Then there's a raking two-shot mm -hmm. from one side. There's a raking two-shot from the other side of the guys in the back seat. Yep. Then there's a close-up of each guy in the back seat. Then there's a close-up of each guy raking close-up <laughs> of each to guy. To each other. Clean. Right. <laughs> then there's a shot of... Doobie from the rear seat where right. he turns around <laughs> he turns around to address them. Right. And each setup has three takes. Well, you know, then he started doing an improv. See that tree over there? It looks like a uh, a witch. You know, right. that's where I lost my virginity right. when I was thirteen, you know. There's my sister's house right there. She doesn't live there no more. Some weird guy lives there now. I'm telling you, that guy can't figure him out. He uh, keeps, uh, I don't know, an albino pit bull and a two-headed snake right in his bedroom. A two-headed snake? Mm-hmm. I have never seen a two-headed snake. Neil, have you ever seen a two-headed snake? Yes, I have. You did? Where? Arizona Desert Museum. I'll let you see it for five bucks. I saw it for free at the Arizona Desert Museum. Want to see it again? We had four hours of footage. <laughs> for half, what's well, half a page? For, for a quarter page. Oh, my God. I had a question on improv and how John shot, because we've made a lot of movies with Vince Vaughn, and he will improv and John, and John Favreau, and a lot of time in that, we'll shoot cross coverage. So we'll shoot both sides of the line at the same time, which the editor greatly appreciates, because if there's overlaps, if there's stuff, you get both sides. The alternative to that is... You shoot one side, and then someone's taking copious notes to get, then turn around and get the response. Would John shoot cross coverage? Well, I don't really remember uh, multiple camera uh, shooting on the picture. A single camera. In those days, it was conventional to shoot with one right. camera. And then you'd remember whatever improv you did, turn around, and then cover it on the other side. I suppose. That's challenging. I remember going down to the set one day, and I said to the script supervisor, how's it going? She said, not well. 
I said, well, what's wrong? She said, uh, the master shot lasted 14 minutes. You know, now most movies are made up of scenes like a three or four minute scene, a three minute scene, a two minute scene, three minute scene, four minute scene. This shot, you know, the, the scene was 14 minutes. I said, wait a second. The camera only holds 11 minutes of film. <laughs> right. She said, <laughs> yeah. She said, we did a pickup. <laughs> oh my oh gosh. My. So I, I started adding extra editors on the picture. And one of the tasks I gave to one of my, it was a, an assistant I promoted called a battlefield promotion. I promoted him to editor. <laughs> totally. And gave him this scene. I remember coming out of screening dailies one day and I turned to my crew. We had watched like three and a half hours or something. Uh, I think it was the first motel. Uh, there's some great improvs that never got reported. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Always. He had a, a, Candy started this story about, he says, Neil, he says, you know anything about mining? He says, mining? He says, yeah, like coal mining, you know? He says, well, no, not really. Uh, not knowing where he's going with this. He says, well, you know, the miners, uh, there's always a, a uh, fear of some gas. And they have these canaries in the, in the coal mines. They keep in a cage. And, you know, that's a warning signal that if there's poisonous gas in the mine, the canary will die. He says, yeah. He says, well, imagine that we had a little cage in the bed with us here. And there's a little canary named Petey. Petey's in the cage in the bed with us. He says, yeah. He says, well, Petey just died. <laughs> there is. So, so, and there was a lot of stuff like this that just never made it into the cut because it's just too much. You know, so I came out and I turned to my crew. I said, we just watched more film today than the entire picture can run. Right. right. That's one For day's one dailies oh out of 85 days of shooting. Right. The Candyman can. I want to talk a little bit about John Candy. Yeah. In particular, the dramatic chops that he had and the dramatic acting ability that he had in, in, in that scene in the hotel room yeah. when Neil really starts to dress him down after the frustrations of sharing the bed. You've got a free cab, you've got a free room, and someone who'll listen to your boring stories. I mean, didn't you, didn't you notice on the plane when you started talking, eventually I started reading the vomit bag? And you kind of feel that way, right? Like, yeah. you're on his side. It's like, yeah, your stories go on too long. They have no point. They're boring. You're draining. But then it goes too far. Honey, I'd, li I'd like you to meet Del Griffith. He's got some amusing anecdotes for you. Oh, here's a gun so you can blow your brains out. You'll thank me for it. <sighs> I, I, I could tolerate any, any insurance seminar. For days, I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. Those early reactions of John in that moment really start to show the hurt yeah. and the pain that that's causing. And then almost on screen, we start to not be with Neil, and now we're with Del. You want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. 
I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. It's a very tricky scene. In fact, the whole idea of these two guys together was very tricky because you want to say that Candy talks too much and is a bore, but you don't want to bore the audience. So how do you portray somebody who's a bore without boring the audience? You also want to say Neil's fed up, but how do you not make him a complete jerk? Right. But yet feel like that feeling we've had when you're stuck with someone who you don't want to be with, that's... Uh, exactly. You're just on edge. And it's delicate surgery. I imagine when it comes down to it, it's like a couple too many lines for Steve Martin was probably too far. A couple too many lines for John Candy was probably too far in the same direction, that he just becomes a bore. Was it a very delicate balance for you to find that? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was tricky. There's a kind of a medium close-up and there's a big close-up. And some of the decisions I had to make were when to go really tight and when to stay a little away from him. There was one take where he he stumbles over a line. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. I felt that it showed that he was in the grip of a strong emotion. And it worked... It worked to 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 sell the scene, to sell the the point of the scene, which is he's he's fighting back, but he's been hurt. He's he's really been hurt. You can't just get what's technically perfect. You're trying to find the life in the frame, right? The best life in the frame, and if that comes with a stumble, then we all stumble. But it's Keep the uh, war, yeah. John in that moment, Candy in that moment was wonderful, and he had uh, been able to remember massive amounts of text every day. He was prepared every day. There was one day in all those 85 days where he came to the set and he would say, oh, line, what's my line? And it was just the one day. That's and, amazing. And I watched it and I thought, oh my God, this, this whole movie could have been a nightmare if Absolutely. every day had been like this. Yeah. Right. But usually he came and he, he was totally prepared and he knew everything and... and uh, when he did that speech, it was he was prepared. Choose it or lose it. Not only was the schedule 85 days, but when you started this process, yeah. you were told by the studio that they intended to release that Thanksgiving, was, and I think shooting starts in March. Is that correct? We were booked into thousands of theaters on right. November 9th, and there was a threatened director's strike at the end that's, of June. That's so right. the shooting had to be finished by midnight, June 30th. Right. So the 85th day was June 30th. Amazing. So that's so that there was all that pressure going on. And then uh, I, I said to John, I said, I need a week to get the cut together. Right. So he, over the July 4th holiday, we, I, th I remember we worked anyway, and uh, we scheduled a screening of the whole film, three hours and 45 minutes. We booked the room at Paramount. We watched 12 reels. Reels are usually about uh, 10 minutes. Broke for lunch, had sandwiches, started up again, watched the next 12 reels. <laughs> oh it was 24 reels. And we watched the end of the, at the end of the 24 reels, John turned to me, he said, it's too long. <laughs> <You think? laughs> and then he went on vacation. <laughs> 
said you start to figure <laughs> yeah, it out. I'm off to Aruba. But for perspective, oh right, yeah. a first cut would be north of two hours. That's sure. logical that, you know, you're kind of taking all the footage. But 345, I've never experienced one in my life. Was that the longest one you had seen to date? Uh, ever in my career. Still <laughs> to date, even Still. everything you edited afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And it's a comedy. The longest. Yeah. And by the way, the movie is 90 minutes long. So that's a... Is it, you you know, know, I forget what's in and what's out. I mean... I, I can imagine, but 3.45 is crazy. But now you're okay. staring at three, a three-hour and 45-minute cut you're looking at yeah. with a deadline that's booked. Yeah, and right? John is on vacation. And John's on vacation. So and you're, the studio's going crazy. I said, well, I, I can't really do anything until he gets back. Right. So he took a week or 10 days. I forget what it was. He I comes was back. surprised after 85 days of being in the battlefield. Exactly. He needed a, a, a little bit of time off and a little bit of perspective. Yeah. And clearly he was thinking about it while he was gone. So he came back and he said, all right, let's sit down at the chem. There's the editing machine, flatbed editing machine. We go through it one reel at a time. And he would, we would watch it for a while. He said, all right, let's lose all this. Let's take this out. Out. And I would actually physically take it out and do this. We went through the whole picture like this. Out, out, out. Without reworking anything, just right, just wholesale just, lifting just, out. Just take this out. We're going to drop right. this whole idea. Uh, there's a whole line of of uh, uh, Layla, the the wife, uh, suspecting Steve was having an affair. He's been traveling nonstop for two years. When he is here, his mind is somewhere else. Well, that has nothing to do with his being stranded. Mother, he's not stranded. Quit being so optimistic. He didn't call tonight because he's scared to tell me the truth. What's the truth? People fall out of love. Yeah, was he making up this character, this imaginary character, Del Griffith? So that all came out. People have asked, how come Candy has a black eye at the end of the movie? And we cut that out. If anyone is curious, what happened was when Steve gets out of being uh, searched by the police after their car has been impounded, right. there's a, you know, he's subjected to a body cavity search and... Uh, <laughs> There's a scene. <laughs> There's a scene in the oh diner. Steve says something about the car. You know, at least the insurance. You know, cover the cost of the car. And Candy says, "I didn't get the insurance. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was using your card, so I tried to save money." <laughs> and Steve punches him in the punch. Oh God. Steve punches him in the face. <laughs> so I don't know why we took that out. We it could have been. Well. I mean, it, one one observation was from that moment when he lets him in, there's almost no conflict between them anymore. They're they're kind of a team. Even when the police officer pulls him over and John tries to spin the story, Steve's kind of not. He's not rolling his eyes at him anymore. They're almost like partners in crime in a way. That the spell's been broken, and all the way to the train deck where he says, "Thanks again. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have gotten this far. So thank you." Yeah. So maybe we thought it was it was a. Uh... A setback in their relationship. In a way, yeah, was where where there had been many stuff. Right. So we went from three hours and forty five minutes to two and a half. We took out an hour and fifteen minutes, just just like that, wholesale. Right. I said, John, we just took out twenty eight days of shooting. Oh my God! Which is a movie so, unto itself. So yeah. He, yeah. so he said, he oh, just well. he just shrugged. Right. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Hughes, we have a problem. By the end of August. We'd got it down to two hours. I thought this was the funniest movie ever made. I thought this was going to be a huge hit. And we screened it, and people started walking out. And I was stunned. I was 
blindsided, and uh, I've never recovered. I've been. <laughs> and what was the to to be specific? And I'm sure there was a lot of criticism, but was there? Because as you go through the test screening process, your job is to try to interpret. pull data and try to interpret right. and try to. It's challenging because you're discriminating. Like, okay, maybe that's not, and they might not be perfectly articulating the problem. So you have to interpret. What were you starting to find out at those early two-hour screenings when people were walking out that the issue was? Yeah, to put it in context, before I get into, before I answer your question, we're now around Labor Day, with the beginning of September. Okay. We're in theaters, we're in thousands of theaters, November 9th. So in those days, you had to, working backwards from the 9th, you had to manufacture prints at a lab. Physically. Physically, yes. which are, which means taking the cut negative and running it through the yep. printers and making thousands of prints. So working backwards from November 9th, we have to really finish uh, printing by early November. And in those, those days, things. you would spend three or four weeks mixing. Yep. So that meant we had to start the mix by <laughs> the beginning of October. So you're close now, to picture log. <laughs> oh, my God. So here we are at the beginning of September, and people are walking out of a picture we have to have locked by the end of the month. Okay, we, so there's a big meeting, we read the cards, and they hate the characters. We started having two a week. We did nine screenings in the month of September. And it wasn't until the fourth screening that we figured out why they hated the characters. And it, was, had, it had to do with stuff that we had taken out. Mm -hmm. The audience uh, started to perceive Candy as a user. He was sponging off Steve. Mm -hmm. He was letting him pay for everything, and he was using him and taking advantage of him, and they hated him for that, and then they started hating Steve for putting up with it, for uh, allowing him interesting. to be, allowing himself to be used in that way. And we went through the stuff we'd taken out, and there was one moment at a train station where Candy says, give me your address, I'll send you the money. He says, no, 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 and Steve doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy ever again. Neil! I need your address. I, I gotta send you the money to pay you back for this ticket. Ticket's a gift. Oh, no, 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 no. Come on now. What's the address? Dell. It's a gift. Happy holidays. Same to you. We took it out because we thought it amounts to nothing. He offers to pay and he turns it down. So, you what know. What matter? Right. So we put that back and it turned it all around. Interesting. Just having made the offer. Wow. Right. Which is probably instinctively why John put it in the script. Right, maybe on right. some subconscious level you want to know that he's not this guy, but you sort of inadvertently slashed an artery yeah. of the movie yeah. and didn't realize it. <laughs> it's a good way to put quest it. to yeah. shorten it. I like that. If you're running a small business, especially around the holidays, you know things can get very stressful. New customers and new heights means new problems every single day. And as your business grows and your company expands, the simple tasks you used to do in a day are now taking weeks to complete. Well, if this is you, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1 because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, 
manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place, with NetSuite. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash Christmas. That's netsuite.com slash Christmas to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Christmas. The final rewrite. So we really want to get into the ending of this movie. Vince Vaughn, our producer, is very good friends with John Hughes. John broke down a lot for him of what the journey was from reimagining what was originally shot and what was on the page, what a monumental effort it was. Can you can you speak a little bit about to, I guess, maybe first identifying what the issues were and the process that you took to land an important ending for the movie that was working well to that point, but really was kind of falling on its face. We started getting laughs from the audience. Bad laughs. You were meant to be sincere, and they were laughing. Bad laughs. Yes. In the original construction, they part at the, the L station in downtown Chicago. Steve gets on the train. Candy disappears. Steve gets off the train in the suburban town that he lives in, goes into the, the suburban station, and trips over Dell's trunk. Mm-hmm. Once again, mm-hmm. and he looks up. He says, "Dell, what are you doing here?" He says, "Well, uh, you know, when you left me downtown, I got one of the truck drivers to give me a lift out here." He says, "Well, what? Are you, why are you here?" And that's when he launches into the speech of, "Poor me, poor me." Right. Dell reveals to Neil that he's homeless and um, that he has no place to go. And the longer he went on and said, "You know." Uh, Marie died, and there's some Snickers, and then, you know, I've been living alone ever since, and more left, you know. Oh, no. I mean, I have the pages. Uh, it's a long, long right. speech, and we thought, this is horrible. What are we going to do? So we got rid of all that. So we were recutting and remixing twice a week oh, my God. for a month. And I described it as laying, laying track in front of a locomotive, Right, you know, we're right. working Trying to around up. the clock. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, so in that frenzy of work, I don't know who came up with the idea, where it came from, but uh, the solution harked back to my first day on the picture and the dailies that day of Steve on a commuter train in Chicago. We finally get to a shot of Steve like this. We've been getting tighter and tighter. Yeah, and there's nothing written in the script about what he's thinking about. Right. But I guess Steve thought, when the camera's on my face, I better do something. Do something. So he, he started to, I guess he started to reminisce about the trip, and he would, you know, sort of shake his head and, and laugh and chuckle, you know, and, and, and then look puzzled, and, you know, and he went through various expressions of right. just, I don't know what he was thinking, he was just... Giving something in the moment. Right. Six months later, we're in this situation where we're getting these bad laughs at the end, somebody comes up with the idea using that close-up as a way of having Steve remember moments from the movie that were hints. So the idea was to sell the idea that Steve figures it out, decides to go back and fetch Dell from, uh, from downtown. So we used the same train station uh, that was meant to be a suburban train station right. as the downtown station because we'd never seen inside. 
And we ran the, we only had shots of the train leaving the downtown station. So we ran the film backwards. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. So we have the film coming back to the station we've seen before. He gets off the train and we had to flop the shot because instead of running this way, he has to He's run that go way. the opposite way, right. And he goes in and he, they have a sort of a two word conversation, a very brief moment after uh, Dell says, Marie's been dead for eight years. The shot of Steve, we held for a long time, uh, mostly because you need to feel the emotion of the moment. And mm -hmm. we see him processing it, reacting to it, and then making a decision. That reaction of Steve processing it and everything was probably listening to a speech that was going on at the time. Right, right. We probably took Taken it from, from something else. From the, you know, the scene that Candy was playing the lines off, off stage. Right. We took it all out. So we're just left with Steve's reaction to what he had been hearing, which plays in this context as if he's digesting. That's right. And, what, and the implications of what he's just heard, you know. And what it did was it did wonders for the film because, first of all, it gave Steve uh, sufficient sensitivity and empathy to understand what Dell's situation was. Right. And instead of being ambushed by Dell and being sort of strong-armed into inviting him home. He does it on his own, mm -hmm. and it gives Dell greater dignity because he's not throwing himself absolutely uh, uh, into you know at his feet and begging for, for right. sympathy. So uh, it helped both characters. It's a tremendous moment to be able to re-engineer the ending of that movie in such a significant fashion. Yeah, we got lucky. Thank God he shot two hours on the train. It just goes to show you how much you can rewrite in the edit room. It's an often less understood position outside of Hollywood, but it's such a vital and important position. And the truth is what happens in post-production, you know, we often refer to as the final rewrite. It's, it's really... Yeah. Kind of in many ways the making of the movie, and so it's 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 such a significant position. The contributions are so immense from editors to the process. So what you and John accomplished is an incredible piece of history, and fans are really really grateful. I compare it to making a meal, like the 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 script is the recipe, and then the shooting is going out and getting the the ingredients, and the editing room is where you cook the you meal. It's true, and you're so a great chef. Thank you. You know, <laughs> really nice, are. really nice to be able to put that out in the world. So thank you again for all the time and the thought in these stories and walking down memory lane with planes, trains, automobiles. I'm very impressed with you and the quality of your questions and the preparation you've obviously given to this program, and I, I really appreciate oh, it. Oh well, the, thank you. This it's it's an easy one to prep, and uh, really really enjoyed it. It's well, it's you know, I've done a lot of really these, nice. and I'm very impressed. I have to say. <laughs> Liked it very, very much. So thank you again for uh, coming in. My pleasure. Change of Heart. So after surviving uh, multiple hotel rooms with Dell, uh, yes. getting punched out by a baggage handler, nearly run over, a burned car, <laughs> nearly arrested. A broken down train. Yes. Uh, a bus ride in singing uh, sing-alongs. To the Flintstones, just the most epic adventure of attempting to get home, barely escaping at every turn. It is Thanksgiving. 
The sun is getting close to setting, and Neil is on the precipice of completing his journey. One short train ride left is all he has to mm-hmm. make it home. And let's see how this movie ends its conflict. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. At the very least, the absolute minimum, you've got a woman you love to grow old with, right? I've been spending too much time away from home. I haven't been home in years. I haven't been home in years. I haven't been home in years. Said you were going home. What are you doing here? I, uh... I don't have a home. Marie's been dead for eight years. Lucky guy, Neil. Look, I won't stay long or anything. Maybe I'll just come in and say hi, and then I'll be on my way, all right? Hiya, kiddo. Uh, so there you have it. It's it's so satisfying because yes. the whole setup is, can he make it home? And he does. Mm-hmm. But... He's got a new friend, <laughs> someone yes. who at the beginning of the movie you never would have expected. We heard how much that scene is re-engineered mm-hmm. and how it went from this very big monologue from John that audiences were laughing at because they weren't taking it seriously to this incredibly kind of bite-sized, efficient, really, yeah. really satisfying scene. No place like home. So with Neil getting back in with a new friend, uh, let's see how this movie resolves itself. I had, uh, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. Hello, Mr. Griffith. Well, Mrs. Page. Yeah, and it ends on Dell. Yeah. You know, ends on Dell's face, mm-hmm. not 
Neil, Steve Martin's face. Right. I think it's just more emotionally impactful when that's the last frame you see. Because it's not just him smiling, it's him, he's doing all the matriculation of emotions, I think, in that moment for Dell. And it's a lot within, what, five seconds? Yeah. You're seeing kind of heartache, you're seeing maybe regret, then he's coming out of it, and he's looking up and seeing this loving couple, and uh, he's seeing love, and I-, I think he's seeing it within himself in that moment there. You feel like Dell's almost a part of the family now. He's brought into yes. the most intimate family time, which is a Thanksgiving dinner. Right. And Neil wants him at his table. Right, and so what a dinner a far, Tuesday. What yeah. a far cry from where he started on that airplane uh, with him, and it, it, it shows the great growth, and I think the, the great themes that John Hughes writes about mm-hmm the themes of the holidays of forgiveness and love and acceptance and all the things that go into that time that give us just those good feelings. And so the movie is such a one-two punch, satisfies on the plot, sure, but really creates this beautiful theme of character and the growth in Neil and the growth that we all aspire to want to have. Everything is being communicated via visuals to you. You're reading so much into all this uh, at the very end. He's there. He's hugging. It's not like, I love you. I missed you. So you see it in the embrace. You see it in her face. That's right. And I remember our our good mutual friend, Vince Vaughn, one time we were working on a film together and he said, now you got to write this scene. It's very significant. It's impactful. You know the stakes. So go write it. And before I left, he said one, one last thing. I know you think that these things are bigger than they are, but just remember, if you go back and watch some significant, impactful scenes, it's not as much as you think. Yeah. So don't overwrite it. Right. And I think this is a perfect example of, of, of just almost like letting the emotion play itself out as opposed to people communicating the emotion of the moment. That's right. And, you know, they're all changed. Dell has a home. Neil, in some ways, has a bigger heart. Yes. The family's restored. The kids are happy to see him. And it's just a, it's a really, really satisfying ending. So where this film stacks up, it opened in November of 1987. And the opening was a little disappointing to Mm -hmm. the filmmakers. They were hoping for number one. Mm -hmm. It did not open number one. It was Three Men and a Baby that it was was three it was three men and a baby that beat it. The the film ultimately did uh forty nine point five million dollars at the box office. If you translate that it's just under a hundred and thirty four million. So certainly nothing to sneeze at. Right. Um a financially successful film. And after hearing about Paul's journey uh, from a three hour forty five minute cut you do have a better appreciation for every single scene in that movie is there for a distinct reason. You make these, I think, in 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 hopes, and John had hoped that this would be a perennial movie that would come back every year, and it it hit that. It yes. hit the iconic status. Mm-hmm. It's hit the cultural status. The movie is eminently quotable. It's memorable. Yeah. Um, you can bring it up. It's so in the zeitgeist. Everyone knows it. Yeah. Um, you can do bits from it and get your friends to laugh because it's so familiar. And uh, it, it's so it's it's really kind of a cultural touchstone at this point. And again, the rare Thanksgiving holiday movie. Yes. We're profiling it on Christmas movies because it just has all the same sentiments of the yes. ho- of the holidays. It's family and it's it's kindness and it's forgiveness and it's mm-hmm. all those things. So you know, it feels very much like a Christmas movie or like what you'd call a holiday movie. And You know, Pete, one of the things I really loved about the film is that if you stayed long enough, you'd yeah. be rewarded. There was a mm. funny end credit laugh that he had inserted. Um, and the first time I'd re- I'd remembered seeing uh, an end credit 
scene as a kid was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's right. Uh, Ferris That's tells everybody to, to go home. In, in Planes, Trains, it's, uh, it's an ad exec. It is. It's the same ad exec that's in the first act who's right. looking at photos and can't make a decision. John was in advertising, mm -hmm. and I, I suspect this is his subtle kind of homage to <laughs> just how awful it was <laughs> that you'd have to deal with somebody scrutinizing an ad copy like right. that and then ultimately not even able to have an opinion on it. He just seemed to have fun with it in the end credits. Yeah. No, it's another... no other real purpose, but there's storytelling real estate there, so he just used it. Yeah, and, and, and as we've discussed, that he doesn't leave anything to chance. He really thinks if there's an opportunity, let's, let's maximize it. It's fun. Well, thanks, Steve. Always enjoy Thank doing you, these Peter. with you. Appreciate this was it. another great one. It was planes, trains, and automobiles, and Merry Christmas to all. And to all a good night. <laughs>